for his cause. And we have a lot of talented people here, which I'm really grateful for. And all you guys in different ways are making things happen for God's glory. I'm grateful for that. Um, next week, as we meet together on Sunday night for our Thanksgiving celebration together, at 5 o'clock we're going to have a time of testimony before we share a meal together. And need to hear from you guys. I want to just prompt you now. I encourage you to, to come and to share how has God blessed you this past year. What are you thankful for? What has He done in your life this past year? We want to hear, I want to hear how God's blessed you. So come and share that and then we have an opportunity to eat together and say thanks God uh, for blessing us. Continuing on guys in a study in Ecclesiastes that I have named the search. People are in a search for satisfaction. What is it that fulfills? What is it that really fills my heart? There was a poll done at ABC News. And they asked people, what brings you fulfillment? One guy said, well, $100 million would, would do it. Another lady said, just some ready cash. Another guy said, uh, well, a castle would do it. And another person said, well, how about a private island? I think that would fulfill me. And then another guy said, well, I think a bunch of women would do it. And Solomon is a guy who would say, all of the above, uh, circle D, because he had tried it all. He, he had an experience and a journey to seek satisfaction, to seek fulfillment horizontally, to seek fulfillment in this life, to get all the pleasure out of every possible avenue but without God. And uh, this morning we're going to look at some of those roads that he took in his search to find meaning in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 11. And I want to ask you in God's honor to stand as I read aloud this text. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with such wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I thought in my heart, Come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what's good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards, I made gardens, parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. 
I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we come to you, Lord, we understand that to live life as if you are not there is foolish. You are there, God. And we have for us a diary, a recorded experience of a famous man, God, who sought answers to life apart from you. And as we look at this record this morning, God, speak to our hearts. Remind us, Lord, that we need you, the living God, in our lives, God. Have your way in us. In your name we pray. Amen. Guys, you look at the first 11 verses here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and, and you read about a guy who speaks as if he's discouraged, speaks as if he, he's, look around, he's looked around and life is empty, it is meaningless. And then we come down to verse 12 here, and it moves from third person, an objective look, to personal experience, to a subjective look. It speaks about God here. Uh, the word used most of the time is Yahweh, which speaks of a personal God who searches us out, who loves us, who is I am. But here is the word Elohim that speaks of God as creator. He's a God that made everything, but the emphasis is more on what He has made instead of Him being the Heavenly Father, the one that we come to. And so Solomon is looking at life not up vertically, but around him. And as he searches, as he gazes, life comes up empty. And we want to look at that this morning in several places as he looked around for answers. The first path is learning. Uh, Look in verse 12. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. He said, I devoted myself to study and explore by wisdom all that is under heaven. Man, he was a student of knowledge. He wanted to know facts. He, he, want, he wanted to study. He, he wanted to be educated. He, he wanted to be thoroughly aware of everything that was around him and that there he would find answers. This was his doctoral dissertation here as we read about knowledge and the value of, of knowing things. And as we read about this guy, this was an area and a time in Jerusalem, 40 years of peace, uh, just it was a great time for that land, a wonderful time of growth. And as we read about this knowledge that he has, uh, I, I want to look in, uh, this is First Kings chapter 10. You see, people were coming from other countries to find out how this guy got so successful, how this land was making so many gains. And in First Kings chapter 10, we read about one person who came to visit him, Queen, the Queen of Sheba. 
We read, when the Queen of Sheba heard about the famous Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba all the wisdom, saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She thought, man, this guy's fascinating, amazing. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me in wisdom and wealth. You far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who's delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, He's made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Man, this was a guy that was impressive. He left quite an impression as others looked at him. But something happened to Solomon. Yeah, he he was wise. Yeah, he had it together. But it went to his head. I, I believe that he went on an ego trip and he forgot the source of all that. Look at verses 16 and 17. I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of my wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom. Then he says, I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. This wisdom that he attained, we learn... Guys, that it didn't come because he was so great, but because he had this vision, he had this dream, and he said, God, I want to be your man. I want to be your ruler. So God, I, I want to be wise. I want to be discerning. And it says that when God saw his heart, that rather than to have riches, rather than to have power, rather than to be the, a celebrity, that he really cared about people and wanted to know the answers in order to help the kingdom and help people, God granted him wisdom. You see, the source of his wisdom didn't come from him. It came from above. And once Solomon lost sight of that source, he was in trouble. And as we read this journey, we read a man who's in trouble because he lost sight of where he came from. He lost sight of where the wisdom originally came from. He lost sight of his beginnings and it took him down a wrong road that brought him a lot of pain. Someone has said, uh, look around and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look to Jesus and be at rest. Uh, This is what he needed. In verse 18, it says, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Someone said that philosophy is the discipline that allows you to be miserable more intelligently. Well, he had gained an intelligence, but he wasn't fulfilled through that search. Someone said if, if we could measure the amount of knowledge that we have. From uh, the beginning of time to 1845, it would be an inch. From 1845 to 1945, it would be three inches. From 1945 to 1975, it would be the size of the Empire State Building. And then after that, knowledge doubled every two years. I don't even know where we are now. The point is, if it was just having knowledge at our fingertips, 
we should have arrived. We should be fulfilled. If it was just the amount of knowledge that was necessary to attain happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction, we should have arrived. Because guys, there's more knowledge than we can ever read and study and attain before us right at our fingertips. Just through the internet. Just do a Google search. It's nuts. The number of hits that are available out there. The number of websites that are out there. But it wasn't through knowledge that you find the answers. Next, he looked through the path of just having a good time, a big party. <laughs> Look uh, in chapter 2. He said, I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what's good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still got him in wisdom. I wanted to see what was, was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the final days of their lives. He was looking for answers and throwing a big, impressive bash. And if there was a guy that was able to do that, guys, this, he was the guy. I mean, he had Im- impressive resources to throw a party. As a matter of fact, uh, this is from 1 Kings chapter 4. Would you listen to his daily provisions that he had at the kingdom? In 1 Kings 4, starting at verse 22, Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of fine flour. That's about 185 bushels of flour. 60 cores of meal, probably about 375 bushels of cornmeal. 10 head of stall-fed cattle. 20 of pasture-fed cattle. And 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice Foul. So, I mean, he had some food at his party. <laughs> Matter of fact, you, it's been calculated that that would feed thousands of people in a day. People from everywhere, thousands of people came to, to be at the party of parties. Here was Solomon trying to find answers through just having fun, just having a good time, surrounding yourself with people, making everyone uh, enjoy themselves in a time of pleasure. But that didn't fulfill his heart. It says that he tried laughter. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the Bible says a cheerful heart's good medicine. Many of the most famous comedians of our day are not happy people. A lot of them are depressed. Um, matter of fact, it was interesting as I did some looking and studying on recent comedians, I found out that uh, there are a number of famous comedians that suffer from mental illness. Listen to a few of these names. Jonathan Winters, Ben Stiller, Robin Williams, Jim Carrey. I know you've heard at least one of those names. What's the source behind their laughter? Well, for, for, for many of them, it's beyond just what is on the surface. You have pain. Uh, John Belushi and Jim Farley both died of drug overdoses. Interestingly enough, both of them died from speed doing speedballs, which is a combined injection of heroin and cocaine. 2007, Owen Wilson, another funny man, slid his wrist. So there's a struggle that was going on within them. Then there are those in comedy that are being funny just for survival. It was interesting as I read about Richard Pryor. Man, what a t- horrible home he grew up in. He was the son of a prostitute who abandoned him at the age of 10, at the age of 6. He was molested 
Much of his comedy came out of his pain, just seeking to survive. Then there were those uh, described in the article talking about comedians that used their humor just to aid others, just to cheer them up. And it talked about uh, Bernie Mac. Remember him who died just a couple of years ago? And Bernie Mac grew up on the south side of Chicago. His grandfather was a Baptist deacon. He did his first comedy skit in church at the age of eight, impersonating his grandfather. Bernie Mac said he remembered back to when he first knew he wanted to be a comedian. He was four years old and his mother was crying. And it broke his heart. And then suddenly his mother started laughing and he looked and she was watching Bill Cosby on TV. And Bill Cosby made her laugh. And he said, my life goal from that point on was to make sure nobody had to cry. I wanted to make them laugh. So that was... Bernie's heart, that's what he wanted to achieve. Solomon, he he wanted people to to laugh. He wanted to to try that route to bring satisfaction, to bring fulfillment, to meet the empty part of the heart. But he said, hey, even that, even that was not enough. He said, we we tried that. I thought in my heart, come now, we'll test pleasure. (laughs) But it proved meaningless. Laughter. What's it accomplish? And then it said he tried cheering himself with wine. This is not the guy laying in the gutter with a bottle and a paper bag drinking it. This is the sophisticate. The guy who has got it together and he's sipping wine and he's sharing answers. He said the answer wasn't there. It wasn't being in posh. It wasn't in having it together and looking the part of a leader. That wasn't where I found the answer. That's not where it was. Then he says there's the path of building. Notice, uh, we continue in the text, verse 4, it says he undertook great projects. Houses, planted vineyards, gardens, parks. He built Whatever he wanted to build, he he wanted to create, to to bring forth things of beauty that would touch hearts and would make a difference. Uh, He built these amazing reservoirs that uh, we know are known as Solomon's Pools, built on seven acres of land, these three massive pools that hold three gallons of water. Architecturally magnificent. But he, he said all of this building did not fulfill his heart. Uh, it's interesting, uh, as we read on, he, he s- still said it was, it was meaningless. As I study, I read about the Winchester house. I don't know if you've heard of that story. William Winchester married a girl named Sarah in, in Connecticut. He got into the gun business, was part of... Uh, those who developed the Henry rifle. Up to that point, they had muskets. But the Henry rifle was the first rifle that could actually shoot repeating rounds. could shoot a bullet, uh, one bullet every three seconds. became the most popular weapon of the Union Army in the Civil War. Of course, William became very rich. And he and Sarah amassed this great fortune. But soon tragedy set in. They had a little baby, Annie, who was born with a horrible disease. 
In six days, they watched her body break down. The lanny died. And Sarah almost went crazy in grief. And then years later, her husband William died of tuberculosis. And Sarah went to a psychic, a medium, and said, what do I do? And this medium said, oh, your husband's come back from the grave. And he is telling you that there's a lot of death that was caused through the firearms that you developed and that you sold. And that the only way to pay that back is to sell your house in Connecticut and to move out west to buy a house and for the rest of your life to always be building in order to build and to give back the destruction and the havoc that you caused. So she sold her place in Connecticut, moved out to California, bought a house from a doctor out there that had six rooms, and for the next 36 years she hired 22 carpenters that worked day and night, 24 hours, to build onto this house. What started out with six rooms... Of course, grew substantially. I want to read to you something about this house. It said, uh, As the days and weeks and months passed, the house continued to grow. Rooms were added to rooms and then turned into entire wings. Doors were joined to windows. Levels turned into towers. Peaks and place eventually grew to a height of seven stories. Inside of the house, three elevators were installed, as were 47 fireplaces. There were countless staircases which led nowhere. A blind chimney that stopped short of the ceiling. Closets that opened to blank walls, trap doors, double back hallways, skylights that were located one above another, doors opened to steep drops to the lawn below, and dozens of other oddities. Even all the stair posts were installed upside down, and many of the bathrooms had glass doors on them. It was also obvious Sarah was intrigued by the number 13. Nearly all the windows contained 13 panes of glass. The walls had 13 panels. The greenhouse had 13 cupolas. Many of the wooden floors contained 13 sections. Some rooms had 13 windows, and every staircase but one had 13 steps. <laughs> it says the number of bedrooms increased from 15 to 20, then to 25. And in this place, she only had two mirrors because she believed that ghosts were afraid of their own reflection. You see, she believed that she was haunted by the ghosts of those who died from those firearms that were created and were sold and she amassed her fortune from. And Sarah died with this incredibly massive house. Most of her fortune built, uh, spent on building this place. But in the end, it didn't save her. The whole time she thought, if I, if I stop building, I, I'll die. Well, she died anyway in her 80s. A broken person. Building was not enough to fulfill her, to fulfill her heart. The next he tried the path of acquiring things. Look at verse 7. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also mourned on more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Man, here's a guy. He didn't just have friends. He bought friends. Anything he wanted, he purchased he was so wealthy that if he saw a person that intrigued him, he just pointed that way. So it doesn't matter how much it cost, I've got the money. Everything his eyes wanted, he got. No one said no to him. No one held it back. Um, as we read about the money that he had uh, in First Kings 10, it talks about how much gold he had. And someone had calculated that that money itself 
was worth a little over $2 billion. But that was not all that he had. He also had other resources. He had other ways of getting revenue. Man, he was loaded, but he was empty. We also read in here about singers, uh, about music. Uh, he, he tried to find answers through the beauty of music. Uh, we find out in the Scriptures that he himself wrote 105 songs. Can't you just imagine him having his own orchestra? All the instruments lined up playing his music. How he sat there and listened to his own compositions being played by this incredible music, musicians. But yet, in the end, that, that did not fulfill him. That, that made him happy for a moment, but it didn't really fill his heart. It was a temporary satisfaction. Notice there in, in verse 10, he said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for my labor. He said, when I surveyed all my hands had done, and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Guys, you look at this, it's amazing. This guy went after everything he wanted. And yet he came up empty. This is a simple warning here. When we seek for the answers of life and leave God out, it's futile, it's empty, it's meaningless. And it's not going to fill the heart. Heard a story of a little boy that wanted a puppy. He went to the pet store and he picked out this one little puppy that was not impressive. Matter of fact, he was downright ugly. And uh, his dad looked at him and said, Are you sure you want that puppy? He said, I want that puppy. He said, Why do you want that puppy? And he pointed at that puppy's tail, which was wagging furiously. He said, Yeah, why do you want him? He said, I want the puppy with a happy ending. And I believe that all of us here want the life with a happy ending. And that only comes with God. That only comes when we turn to Him. Guys, it's been said that we can send a sinner to the best colleges, universities that are in the world, give him the, the greatest education that's available and what we'll have is a very intelligent sinner. We can surround him with the best entertainers, the best opportunities to laugh, and we'll have a very entertained sinner. We can give him money, a great treasure, great amount of money, and we'll have a very wealthy sinner. Man, we can allow him to, to be famous and, and to take his gifts and his talents and, and to use them in order to make a difference and we'll have a very famous sinner. But when we introduce him to Jesus Christ and the work that was done at Calvary and the hope that's given to us through his sacrifice, well, when that person meets Jesus, then what we have is a very grateful, forgiven sinner. And you know, that invitation's still available today. I don't know what road you've gone down or what road you're going down now. But Jesus is there. And He is the only one really made to fit in this empty spot of the heart. He is the only one who's there when everything else is gone. And my, I guess my plea to you uh, as we leave you this morning 
is give Jesus his rightful place. Open your heart to Christ. Let him live in your heart to bring forgiveness and guidance and hope. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we have taken time, Lord, uh, to look at this ancient chronicle, ancient writing of a journey of a man who was looking for answers without you. Lord, um, boy, it sure doesn't sound like an ancient writing. It sounds like today. And Father, it's still true that when we look for the answers of life, apart from you, Lord, it's an empty search. And I pray this morning that, Lord, you would draw us to you. That, Lord, the ones who are here, that all of us would listen to the voice of your Spirit and that we would respond, that we'd come to the altar to pray, that we would come forward, Lord, to seek your heart um, before God's people and and to share the decision that you want us to make. Uh, Lord, that we'd make that decision and cement it before God's people by sharing, I intend to say yes to God in this area. Uh, Lord, whether it's for the first time to find forgiveness and salvation or to follow you in a certain pursuit that you call us to, whatever it is, Lord, may we simply say yes to you. Lord, we need you. We want you to to be honored and praised. And so, Lord, have your way in this time we call response or invitation. Lord, as we sing, may we come in obedience. In your name we pray. Amen.